Welcome to CRISPR Unedited. This episode is sponsored by Agilent Technologies. Please check out what they have to offer. See the show notes for details. Welcome to CRISPR Unedited, a bite-sized bio podcast hosted by Anthony Adamson. Today on CRISPR Unedited, we chat to Bernard Schmierer, who heads the CRISPR Functional Genomics Facility at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden. We learn about the vast number of cells required for CRISPR screens. This means uh, 500 cells to 1,000 cells per guide, so you're handling roughly 80 million cells. Hear about must-read literature on CRISPR screens. Read the review by John Dench that's called Am I Ready for CRISPR? I think we also call it the gospel according to John. And we discover what the future holds. We are looking a lot into uh, base editing screens uh, where you can now, instead of knocking out an entire gene or activating an entire gene, you can now actually introduce point mutations. All this and more in this episode of CRISPR Unedited. Hello everyone and welcome to this podcast from Bite Size Bio. My name is Anthony Adamson and I run a core facility called the Genome Editing Unit where we use CRISPR-Cas9 to engineer uh, cultured cells, uh, genetically modified mouse models and, and modified flies as well. Now my facility focuses on one gene at a time. Um, we might use CRISPR to say knock out that gene of interest in a cell line and explore its function afterwards, maybe put some mutations in that uh, same gene or tag it with a a fluorescent protein. But today's podcast guest, um, he doesn't concern himself with one gene at a time. He operates at scale, tags in the entire genome and knocking out every single gene using these so-called CRISPR knockout screens. So I'd like to welcome Bernard Schmierer to the podcast. Welcome, Bernard. Thank you, Anthony. Uh, so, to start with, maybe we could get an idea of your background. Tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, how you came to work in the field of performing CRISPR screens. Yeah, sure. Um, so, I am, I'm originally from Austria. I did my uh, undergrad in biochemistry and my PhD at Vienna University. Um, and then moved on to London to do a postdoc uh, to Cancer Research UK, London Research Institute. So Cancer Research UK had actually just been founded a year prior to, to me joining. That was in 2003, I think. I uh, spent five years there working on TGF-beta signaling, mechanisms of TGF-beta signal transduction from the membrane to the nucleus. And while doing this, I slid a little into mathematical modeling of dynamic processes. And I pursued this uh, by moving to Oxford, uh, where I did another postdoc with uh, Bela Novak at the Department of Biochemistry in Oxford. Um, And since 2012, I have been in Stockholm. I came here initially to join as a senior scientist, the lab of UC Taipele, who is now also professor in Cambridge, actually. Um, and CRISPR screening, yeah, um, I, was, I was at the time supposed to run a project uh, where we were looking for genes affecting uh, cell size regulation, and we were doing this gene trapping that had been published in 2011, I think. Uh, but then immediately when uh, the first CRISPR screening papers came out in, in early 2014, we jumped on that bandwagon, and this was my start on CRISPR. Um, the cell size bit never flew, so never <laughs> anything came out of that. Um, but yeah, I think I learned the, 
the CRISPR screening pretty from pretty early on, and then we did a lot of screens with transcription factor libraries on uh, different uh, cancer cell types. So it was essentially like uh, a little bit of what what DepMap is now doing, of course, at, at a huge scale, genome wide, with a lot of cells. And since 2017, I'm running a facility that's now called CRISPR Functional Genomics. We also do the precision editing just as you do, um, with varying success. Um, but we also, and our main focus actually is on is on the on the transcriptomic. Sorry, on the on the functional genomics. So really, I I, I tend to call it functional genomics, CRISPR-based functional genomics, because it's not just knockout screens. But we might get to that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, like I say, we, we tend to just focus on knocking out a single gene at a time, and we haven't performed any knockout screens at all. Um, we are looking into it. We've got a number of people locally who are re uh, interested in applying this technology in their research. And from the outset, you know, as an outsider looking in, it looks quite daunting. You know, the, from what I can tell, there's a hell of a lot of cell culture involved. So, you know, how do you manage this? Yeah, so there are in principle two ways of doing this, right? Uh, there is an array, uh, there are array screens where you have each guide against each gene in one well of a microtide plate. Um, this is not what we do at all. So um, as you were alluding to, we're doing pulled screens. And for pulled screens, as you say, you need quite a lot of cells. So for the genome-wide libraries that are around now and most commonly used, they contain about 80,000 guides, so four guides per gene. And in order to keep the library coverage through a screen, one commonly runs a screen at a 500x to 1000x. This means uh, 500 cells to 1000 cells per guide. So you're handling roughly 80 million cells, maybe 40 million minimally. Um, that can be quite daunting. Uh, one gets used to it. So I don't think it's the biggest issue really, but uh, you should not be scared of having to handle like uh, around 80 T175 large cell culture flasks at a time. Um, yes, so it also needs quite some incubator space sometimes if cells yeah, yeah. are running at the same time. Um, but that's okay. Um, I think it's one of the it's it was one of the things you get used to. Um, people find it quite scary in the beginning, but you get used to it fairly quickly. So how, how many members of staff do you have then? I assume it takes quite a few people to run one of these screens if there's all this cell culture involved. Yeah, so we currently we are six altogether, so including myself. I'm not in the lab ever, which is probably for the better. Um, uh, but uh, five people, no, sorry, four people actually work on the CRISPR screens uh, mainly. So we also do a lot of tech development and other things. So it's not just CRISPR screens. And I have one person doing the precision genome editing, focusing full time on that. And the others help her out quite commonly with that. Um, so it works fairly well. It's not so much limited by people. It, it can be limited by, as I said, like incubator space, or you have to, or virus virus room space and these kind of things. Uh, so you cannot run too many screens at the same time. It has to be one at Just a time. Just one at a time, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And how long would each screen typically take? Um, yeah, um, brings me maybe to another challenge of the screens. So you you, normally do the screen such that you create a Cas9 expressing cell line first. Uh, and creating a Cas9 expressing cell line that actually stably maintains Cas9 expression can be quite challenging. 
Um, so we do that by having a BFP on the CAS9 and we sort multiple times, often over several weeks, multiple times until we get a cell and it is like at least kind of stable. So Sam, it depends so on- these the, aren't clonal though, these are mixed pools? No, they're not clonal. Okay. They're not clonal. So we just uh, do a random integration by lentivirus, which might of course contribute that a large proportion of them just silence over time. But this is something we see very commonly in many cell lines, the silencing. So that can be, can take some time until you have a good Cas9 line. Um, and then- so, quite, the actual, I mean, so there's quite a lot of preliminary work before you even get to the screen then, you, you, you build the yeah. best possible cell line that's going to be amenable to the screen uh, being- Yeah, uh, exactly. So that's important. Yeah, you have to have a good cast line. Um, I mean, if you know, if like only like eighty percent or lower of your cells express casts, you will pick up all the guides that are in empty cells that don't have casts, and it will cause a lot of background, of course. So this needs to be good. So that's worth spending some time on. But altogether, then. Uh, the actual expansion of the cells, library transduction, um, doesn't take that long normally, unless you have cells that grow like really, really slowly, which also happens sometimes. And then to get like uh, 240 million or whatever you need to transduce per, per replicate can be daunting. Uh, but with normal cells, it's not a big deal. So this takes maybe two months. And uh, normally we say to our customers, when they come, they can expect data in, in four to six months. There's also the sequencing, of course, you then need to do the next generation sequencing for which we rely on another facility that does the sequencing. They also have a queue, so it doesn't necessarily go immediately. All right. So, so, about so, the so there's, there's elements that you have to out, you know, elements of the process you have to outsource to other cores. Yeah. Locally, then yeah. Okay. Exactly. So it, 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 we do everything other than the sequencing. Um, so well, library analysis of the sequencing as well. Does it, is, is that something you guys can do or do you work with biomaticians for that process? Uh, data analysis we do ourselves um, with mainly the magic package that is a common thing. Uh, there are many others out there, but we use that one. Um, so we, in the end, there's not that much you can do, right? I mean, you end up with recounts in control and recounts in treatment. So you get two, two columns of numbers. Uh, there's not that much you can do with this, but of course um, you can do gene set enrichment analysis then on the on the data that you get, etc. So we could be better at that, but we do what we can to help to help our clients. So you, so you mentioned this other person who, who does the the cell and engineering. Are, are they involved like that functional validation? So if you've got some really exciting hits on your screen, will that person then go and knock out that cell individually? Sorry, knock out that gene individually in the cells. To, yeah, I, I see. Yeah, we we don't really do it. I mean, you know, the screening it's it's a high throughput method. I I. I used to say it doesn't actually give you any answers most commonly, but it, it teaches you to ask the right questions after. Right. Uh, you get a lot of hits that, some hits hopefully that you expected, other hits that you have no idea why they come up. Um, so then the validation is the really challenging part. I think the screen is uh, relatively straightforward, um, but then the validation, of course, a validation, make sure that your hits are real. And of course, figuring out the mechanism, figuring out a story around the whole thing that you find that is way more time consuming and way mm. more challenging. And that of course, we just pass off to our customer again is okay, there you go, there are your hits, um, good luck. Um, which also contributes to the fact that it can take a very long time from a screen being performed and the publication coming out. So there's a, often a several year 
Yeah, I, mean, I, I suppose just to comment on that, quite often you'll see in papers the screen is figure one, and then yes, exactly. And then everything that follows, you know, it's probably you know a lot more work uh, downstream yeah. of that. Yeah, that's how it is. Yeah. So four to six months is a significant amount of time investment for any investigator, and I, I assume it's it's not necessarily cheap either. Is it quite expensive to run these uh, these 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 experiments? Um, they are, I think a pool screen is actually fairly cheap. Um, okay. An array screen is considerably more expensive because you, you, the reagents are one, one time reagents, right? You just use them up. Um, whereas here, everything is, there is no big instrumentation involved. Um, it's just, it's mainly salary cost because of course it is a lot of work. But a typical screen that we run, so we, we have a subsidy on that as well, but um, it's probably around, 10 to 15,000 pounds. Oh, okay. It's so a lot more reasonable than I expected, yeah. It's not terrible. Um, it's affordable. Um, now, sorry, I lost the video. What, what else did you ask? <laughs> I lost your question. No, I was saying obviously it's a time investment as well. You know, oh, time you, investment. You know, yeah, sure. Or, or investigator colleagues ever get impatient? You know, do they uh, start to ask questions after a couple of months, that kind of thing? Yes, yes, yes. It happens, of course, but uh, in a way, it's it's easy for them because it's as you say, it's normally it's the start of a project, right? So it's not if you make a knockout line like you, for example, do. Uh, then often people also come to us and say, "Oh, uh, we were asked for a paper revision to do that," and and then of course it's urgent, super urgent. The screen is normally the the start of a project, and I think they're a bit more patient there. <laughs> Maybe it's also important to get the expectations right. So you just tell them how long it's likely going to take. Yeah, absolutely. So I suppose, you know, do you always use the same screen? You know, because I know you, I've seen some of your papers use like, you know, the Brunello screen, which is obviously very popular, very well validated, very well used. But do you ever customize it or do you, do you generally speaking stick with that same screen? No, we do a lot of different things. So we also make the libraries ourselves, oh, really? um, depending what people want. So any custom library that can be smaller or bigger than the standard libraries. Of course, I mean, the bread and butter screen is, is a knockout screen with, with Brunello. This is what most people do. So we use Brunello because we like it. I'm not saying it's the necessarily the only good library that's around, but it's a good library. Um, we also do CRISPR activation, CRISPR inhibition um screens we also have done uh, screening with a cas13d so that's the one that actually targets uh, rna instead of uh, dna well let me ask you on that on cas13 so we've been dabbling with cas13 and we haven't been very successful with it not on a screen basis we seem to get quite a lot of cell death and we think a bit of collateral damage of other transcripts is that something you've seen as well not at all, actually. Yeah, but, okay, I mean, there's a mixed literature emerging on this, I think. You know, we, we targeted, so this screen was a relatively small screen for around 150 long non-coding RNAs. Mm -hmm. uh, so I don't know, you know, they might not be that important for things. We have not done really looked, one should actually do a proper screen, I think, where you actually hit essential genes as well and then see how, how well it works. Um, hits came out of it. Um, as always, I mean, people need to validate it now and see whether, whether it actually makes yeah. sense. But it seemed to have worked because normally if a screen doesn't work, it's just everything's flat, right? I mean, you just don't find any hits. Um, if you find hits, especially in this case where you have several more guides than we had like probably 10 guides per transcript, 
and this significantly actually pops up. Uh, it's fairly trustworthy, I think. Yeah. Um, so yeah. then we also do you get many. I'm going to say, do you get many situations where the screen fails, or are generally most screens successful? Um, uh, yeah, fail. It rarely fails. Fails. What it what can happen? What what changes in different screens is the effect size that you get, i.e., then the the p values, uh, the significance, statistically significance of your of your of your hits. So sometimes it's all a bit blurry, and then that's what we call then a poor screen. Um, sometimes can be rescued by redoing the library prep. Uh, sometimes it happens there in the PCR for the for the library prep. But sometimes it's just something else. Um, but I have to say that the vast majority actually work reasonably well. At least you can always say, okay, this could have could have been clearer. But people always find something. Okay, there's a sort of confirmation bias there as well. Right? People want to find something. So that's why I'm then when people try to validate hits, they say, okay, show me again what you want to validate. So I can look in detail at the data. Is this really, do I buy this or do I not buy this? Yeah, I suppose that's where the validation comes in again, isn't it? That, you know, you basically repeat the experiment in a different way to study the gene in a bit more detail. And I said, there is a bit of confirmation bias, isn't there? I suppose that is one of the risks here. You almost have too much data from what I can tell. Yeah, it's uh, it can be a lot of data. It can be you want <laughs> there's some sweet spot, right? You want ideally you want to find like a couple of genes that you were expecting and a couple that you were not expecting. That's ideal. Uh, if you find only the ones you were expecting anyway, they're disappointed. Um, if you get seven hundred hits, um, then they go, oh, well, what are we gonna do now? Uh, <laughs> so yeah, difficult. I guess you can run then a follow-up, a smaller follow-up screen or something to see in a more like followed maybe by single cell transcriptomic readout, for example, to get more information about the phenotype. And so there are things one can narrow it down. But most people pick the hits they work on on a on a much less scientific uh, in a much less scientific way. They just say, okay, I'm comfortable with working with stuff that's in the nucleus. I'm uncomfortable with working with stuff that is in the gold sheet. So if something from the gold sheet comes up, they go, oh, no, uh, it's not my area of expertise. So we drop that one, we take another one, right? So this is more how it works in practice. Well, I suppose when you, when you publish, you do you publish the, the data, the entire data set, so that if someone else around the world was interested in that Golgi or in the other, so, you know, for the results in that compartment, they could take that finding forward. Yeah, ideally. So um, we have also, so we are funded from the Swedish government mainly. We also have a mandate to to push people into, so we, we rarely publish ourselves. It's more that, that our customers publish, but we should push them into also publishing that the data is, is published in, according to fair principles. So it should all be there and it should be findable and retrievable and um, have the metadata present that it can actually be um, refound and, and reused. So what definitely needs to be done is all the original sequencing files are uploaded to short read archives so that this, this data is available, but without the proper metadata, of course, this is not very useful. Mm -hmm. But there are several databases uh, for CRISPR screening data that exist, and we encourage people to, to upload to these in a good way so that then the data is not lost in a sense but it's, it's always hard you know if it comes from different labs done in different ways to make it uh, really comparable it's difficult mm -hmm.
You're listening to CRISPR Unedited. This episode is sponsored by Agilent Technologies. Please check out what they have to offer. See the show notes for details. Um, I was going to ask, does, does everyone at your institute use you guys for functional screening, or do they sometimes do it themselves in their own laboratories? Um, screening, I don't know much that people do screening. So some people have tried and then come to us. Uh, it, because commonly, you know, the first time you do it, it's likely going to fail. Um, you need a practice run at least one practice run i say okay if you the second third time i think you're good it's not that complicated yeah um i think most people quite nicely leads me on to another question i had in that you as a newcomer what would be your your main advice obviously expert failure the first time is one bit of advice i think you could say there but you know what would you say to someone who's you know started to think about using these techniques in the laboratory um yeah Assuming the user, assuming the user published library that you can get ready from AppGene, I think it's not so hard to amplify this. This is pretty easy. Otherwise, library transformation cloning can already be a big problem. Um, okay. If you get all the guides in, so this is something where you need to have good protocols for uh, for double stranding the oligo pool and these kind of things. Uh, if you have a library ready, um, one advice that I would have is make sure that the way you count cells actually count cells correctly um, because um, it seems that many also automatic cell counters, they seem to overestimate the number of cells by counting some debris and something. If you do this several times while you have a screen running and you every time underestimate by 20, 30%, you will then eventually bottleneck your library and you will lose stuff. So having a lot of cells, counting them correctly. Um, How do you count your cells? Are you with the hemocytometer, the old, old yeah. school? It's really yeah. okay. Old school. <laughs> you know, you've got this cutting-edge technology, and you're using a hemocytometer to do your cell counts. Yeah, we have, we have, we would have even a fax that could sort cells. Uh, sorry, uh, count cells, but we no, we rely on the hemocytometer. People are used to it; they're good at it. It's quite consistent, so yeah. works fine. Um, yeah, then if you do screening. If it's a live dead screen, so you have a drug screen or you just look for proliferation, I think it's also still pretty straightforward. Um, there are good protocols on etching how to prep the libraries and do these kind of things. So I think this is all kind of all right. Um, what we do a lot, however, is uh, uh, screens where we do fax-based sorting because in every, any pool screen, right, you need to separate your phenotypes of interest from each other. So if you live dead screen, it's easy. Otherwise, you need to sort. Uh, and again, in order to not bottleneck, one needs to run uh, around 100 million cells through the facts. Um, so commonly, we sort for two days for one experiment, two full days. So this is also something to take into account, especially if you don't have your own sort and rely on a facility. It needs to be pre-booked well in advance. And you have to also tell the poor staff there that they might not be able to go home at the time they are used to because it could take even longer. So, so you use another core facility then? In, in no, your, we have our own sort of. Have your own, yeah. Have own, yeah. yeah. Otherwise, it, it becomes too difficult. Yeah, um, you'd, be, you'd be upsetting all your other colleagues who just want to go. Exactly. Because exactly. yeah. all screens are run in duplicates, so it's very important. It's also good advice. I mean, don't run a screen in only one replicate. Um, 
Because whatever you find, you can never be entirely sure it's correct. But if you have two replicates, then you can be sure about things that you would otherwise be unable to call, right? If something comes up at position rank two in one replicate and rank 150 in the other out of 20,000 genes, then mm -hmm. the rank 150, even if it's maybe not significant statistically, it still means something if it comes up in both replicates. So that's really important, I think. Are your replicates really, generally speaking, quite tight? You know, do you get very, very similar results out of them, or is there a little bit, of, like, say, a bit of a bit of wiggle room there? Uh, it depends a lot on the screen, the screen type, but um, they tend to be fairly okay. Um, wouldn't say tight, but there, there's wiggle room, definitely. Um, yeah. That's why I'm saying you then basically look, okay, uh, you, you can do an average rank of genes between the two replicates and then see where they end up. Um, often the, the calculation of p-values and, and false discovery rates are very, very stringent, often too stringent. So it's not easy to set the cutoff really, where say, okay, this is still worth looking into or is no longer worth looking into. Uh, so yeah, I mean, again, it's down to the researcher, I suppose, who receives the data to decide what they're going to do with yeah. it. Yeah. And it's a common question, where do I put the cutoffs? So, well, wherever you like. Uh, it's a ranked list. Um, whether you, it, it seems make, seems to make sense for you or not, that this is still correct. And, and that's where the replicates help a lot, right? Because otherwise you're totally lost. But if you have two replicates, then it, it's easier. Yeah, I suppose things that come out of being top ranked are very often things that we already know. Um, so right. there's no real follow up for the research to do. So yeah, very often people are looking in that, you know, ranks ten, you know, ten to thirty, those kind of genes rather than one to ten. Yeah. Or if you do screens like we did with the long non-coding RNAs, of course you stick some protein coding genes in as positive controls, and yeah, hooray, they come up as the top hits. Sure. Yeah, um, good in one hand, but yeah. <laughs> So, so, you know, your advice would be, uh, you know, count cells properly, use free first time, a well-published and well-protocoled library, make sure you do things in duplicate, that kind of thing. I mean, really all very good standard scientific advice in many ways, but... Yeah. yeah. Uh, also, uh, read read the review by John Dench that's called Am I Ready for CRISPR? I think we also call it the uh, gospel according to John. Uh, so that has really, really good advice. It covers it really nicely. It's quite a couple of years old by now, but I don't think things have changed a lot. So this is really very, very good advice. So, you know, speaking of change, though, obviously you say things haven't changed loads, but do you see change on the horizon? Are things going to get very different in the next few years? Uh, uh, what, what do you anticipate? Um. Yeah, I'm not sure actually. Uh, the knockout screens, I I don't know. I, the hope is that you could have some some improvements in terms of uh, effect size or have smaller libraries with better guides. So there can always be better guides, right? You can always improve the the prediction of of guide activity and and these kind of things. But uh, mm -hmm. there are also things um, such as that if you cut with a guide and you re rely on non-homologous end joining for, for uh, repair, that of course you can always get in-frame repair and the problem might not be disrupted. So there's always some noise in these screens that you, I don't think it's, it's even possible to get rid of. They will always be to a certain extent noisy. Um, what is maybe coming more is arrayed screens now that it is relatively easy to make these guide RNAs uh, as synthetic guide RNAs. Um, is that now any 
better than was a, an original siRNA screen? I don't know. Um, of course, it's a different situation. If it's a knockout screen, if it's a CRISPR inhibition screen, maybe it's not different. But of course, there are things like uh, SECAS, um, a CAS13D, for example, that is even easier to do in, a, in an array format or a CAS12A because these have much shorter, much shorter guide RNAs. So this is easy, easier and cheaper to synthesize. So maybe this is something that's coming more. Um, and other modalities I think are interesting. So we are looking a lot into uh, base editing screens uh, where you can now, instead of knocking out an entire gene or activating an entire gene, you can now actually introduce point mutations. Uh, so tile entire gene body with guides, introduce point mutations, then for example, see, okay, which point mutations are resistant to a drug. Uh, if you know the drug target, right? So you would do use this on the drug target. So this is something we're looking into quite a lot now. We have not quite succeeded yet. Other people have. Uh, it's a bit tricky, but I think it's doable. And I think this is a is a new frontier where we could get a lot of more information than you can get from a just whole element gene knockout screen. Mm, absolutely. I suppose it's gain a function of the you know or change the function of the yeah change function exactly. Yeah. You could also, I mean, you have to not only think of the drug binding to a target and exactly in the interface you make mutations, it could also be some allosteric uh, interactions that you can identify by this. You can do epitope mapping, protein-protein interaction studies, all sorts of things. Uh, it's not very, base editing, it's not very efficient often, but uh, I think it's good enough um, as it is to, to try to do this kind of screens. So uh, you, you're based in SPY Cas9 all the time, but you mentioned Cas12 as well. Are you using the other Cas proteins that cut DNA? Um, yeah, we have used Cas12A for screens. So in, we use this for multiplexing. So if you want to deliver two guides at once, you want to hit two genes at once, for example, if you are interested in synthetic lethality or in generally speaking, synergistic or buffering interactions between genes, works as well with cas9 but because of the long trace of cas9 it's a bit trickier to get it to work and with mm -hmm. cas12a it works really nicely also because cas12a actually chops its own uh, two guide pair into single guides the problem is uh, is not a huge problem and can be uh, will will improve in time is that maybe the guides are not as good so the maybe the algorithms of guide design are not as advanced as for cas9 so there's maybe a, a higher chance that you have guides in there that actually do not do not really work that well. Um, but we did one screen where we looked at uh, synthetic lethality between between all the ubiquitinases and all the ubiquitinases. So there's a hundred. I think the screen about a hundred times a hundred uh, proteins, and that worked reasonably well, I have to say. So I think it's a it's a totally workable. Um, thing. Cas12a, of course, you can always, in a, in a precision editing context, you can still use it if there is no Cas9 PAM around. Um, we have used Cas12a with good success. Um, I think it works pretty much the same, it seems. Uh, obviously, one part of this is, you know, we, we touched on it before, when you mentioned about live dead screening versus functional assays. I suppose that assay is really critical in terms of how 
sensitive it is to making sure you're separating those population cells according to their different behaviors. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this starts with live dead assays already. If you do live dead assay on a, on a suspension line, for example, some suspension cells seem to hang out quite a long time, even though they're dead, but they're kind of intact. If you then harvest, you harvest also the dead cells with it. And then, of course, your, your dynamic range is gone. Um, more importantly, with other screens where like reporter assays where we do facts-based cell sorting, of course, um, if you do a staining or you, you do not necessarily have to do a reporter line, you can also do staining. So we can also do screens on fixed cells. Um, then the staining has to be like really well set up. Um, another important thing with drug screens, if you want to do a drug screen, is that your drug concentration is actually right. Uh, we do IC50 and IC90 normally. And this is also an important point that this gets tested to so get determined on large culture flasks and not in the 96 well plate because it never translates. Oh, really? Wow. On a small plate and then you go like in a T75 and, and the IC50 is like totally different. Um, so, is that something you do? do you, you know, is that your lab testing the IC50? No, uh, we, tell, we tell our clients to do that. Yeah. Uh, they so build the assays as well, the kind of functional assays too. Yeah, exactly. So the way we work practically is often that we give the, the library transducers back to the client who then does their assay and give us back cell pellets and then we, um, we prep the genomic DNA and do the rest. Because often they know their assay best, right? Uh, yeah, so exactly. Um, trying that. Sometimes they they developing bespoke brand new assays for just you know, just for this application, or is it generally speaking, people say we've already got an assay, let's do a screen. No, often it's a new assays because you can even consider making a specific reporter line for a screen. So we we have projects where we made a TGFB responsive reporter line, for example, that has a GFP under a TGFB responsive promoter. And only then you can actually do a, a proper pooled screen where you can sort out um, high and low responders. So that's quite common, actually. So that's where the precision edit goes into the screen, right? So you have to first do a knock-in yeah. knock line, or people want to compare a knockout line with a wild-up line. So you first make a knockout, then compare these two, which comes with its own set of difficulties. But okay, can be done. So, I mean, honestly, there's so much I, I, I could talk to you all day about this and it, it sounds so exciting and uh, I think I'm going to walk away from this podcast with a renewed enthusiasm to actually you know start speaking to people locally and perform some of these knockout screens uh, but I think you know we've been at it now for just over half an hour we probably should uh, you know call it, call it to a close it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today really appreciate your time um, and I'm feeling a little less intimidated now about <laughs> doing these screens um, uh, not enough. In, are you still intimidated enough to? No, not, I don't think so. I think, I think you know, I'm just intimidated thinking about you know, my 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 team probably say we haven't got time for this. So I think there might maybe some conversations about how we you know move some of our resources around that kind of thing to make sure we can support uh, this, this this type of experiment. But you know, there's so much you can do with it, and we're talking about things that might just scratch the surface. And the things you've described today, how many different ways it can be applied, it just sounds absolutely fascinating. So. Thank you so much for your time today, Bernard Schmira. I apologize again for pronouncing your name really badly. Uh, it's been brilliant and fascinating talking to you. See you soon. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. See you soon. You've been listening to CRISPR Unedited. To access more thoughts, help, and advice on CRISPR, visit bitesizebio.com forward slash CRISPR unedited.
Thank you for listening to CRISPR Unedited. This episode is sponsored by Agilent Technologies. Please check out what they have to offer. See the show notes for details.